I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Mark, Mark chapter 1. I'll be reading verses 9 through 15. Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 15. In those days... Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the spirit like a dove descending upon him. And a voice came out of the heavens. You are my beloved son. In you, I am well pleased. Immediately, the spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beasts and the angels were ministering to him. Now, after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, we, we look forward to this, this moment throughout the week because it's when we get to hear Your Word. It is by Your Word that we're fed. For man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from Your mouth. And I pray that You would grant us understanding, grant me clarity, that all of us might go forth from here worshiping You, For all of your glory, knowing you better, delighting in you more, trusting in you more, and seeing the the, the wickedness and the weakness and the frailty of the things of this world. Lord, help us to see this world as you see it, that we too might follow after you and live the same kind of life that you lived as your followers. But for that to take place, Lord, we need grace. And so we pray that you would be abundantly gracious to us as we listen to your word from the book of Mark. We ask these things in your name. Amen. So this year, our country has had no shortage of natural disasters that it's faced. And I've been following the fires that are taking place in Northern California most recently. Uh, even Scott sent me a, an article on what's taking place there, and it's devastating. So we need to continue to pray for that community, and that really God would work that tragedy out for good, so that in the, in the face of such incredible loss, that people truly would find that hope that can never be taken from them. The most prominent natural disaster in our area, I think we would say, is the explosion of Mount St. Helens in 1981. And weeks before that explosion, a volcanologist, a man by the name of David Johnston, had seen some concerning signs on the mountain. There had been a number of small earthquakes, and the, the side of the mountain began to have a bit of a bulge on, on it. And he was 
as he examined this, he became convinced that an eruption was about to take place. And he convinced the authorities to shut the mountain down from the public so that the public would be safe from any explosion. And he was on the mountain when it exploded. He, he was the first to report it. He transmitted, Vancouver, Vancouver, this is it. And that was his last words. And it, for him, he, he, he believed that it was, as a volcanologist, he had the responsibility to be there to protect the rest of the public from anything that might take place. And he gave his life for the public. If somebody came into your house or to your house, knocked on the door, and they notified you that they were from the Oregon Natural Disaster Response Team, and that they had just received word that there was a massive earthquake that was imminent, hadn't taken place, but beyond a shadow of doubt, they were convinced that danger was about to hit. And they tell you that you have five minutes to pack your bags and to get out of your house and that you could just follow them to the safety zone. What would you do? Would you follow them? How would you know that they're telling the truth? How would you know that they are who they say they are? I mean, seriously, would it be wise to leave everything behind in your house and just follow them wherever they might be going? You don't know where they're going. Leave everything behind and follow them to safety. Similar questions face the Israelites as they listened to the preaching of John the Baptist. As he announced that the Messiah was about to appear, their promised Savior, the Christ. That's what the Christ means, the Messiah. How would they know who the Messiah is? How would they recognize him? See, immediately after the proclamation of John, we're introduced in verse 9 to Jesus of Nazareth. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And this passage before us provides multiple proofs that Jesus is this promised Christ. And then in verses 14 and 15, there's also a succinct summary of the message that the Christ proclaimed. And so let's look first at those proofs of Christ. In verse 9. And, and as we read this, I want to point out to you that this is a very unique passage in that, that uh, in this very brief passage, you have one of the clearest uh, revelations of the Trinity. Both Father, Son, both, all three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are witnessed as being distinct and yet present. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the spirit like a dove descending upon him. And a voice came out of the heavens. You are my beloved son and in you I am well pleased. Now, it's interesting the the fact that Jesus is the Messiah 
is seen in this passage on two different levels. It's seen both symbolically in some of the things that take place, as well as prophetically. There are a number of prophecies about the Messiah that are actually fulfilled in Mark's narrative here. And you'll note that in these three verses, it's Jesus' baptism that is the focus. And interestingly, four things happen. And all of those things are presented from the perspective of Jesus. He's the one that comes up out of the water. He's the one that sees the dove descending upon him. And the Father's voice speaks directly to him. As well as he sees the heavens open. So Jesus is clearly the focus. Moreover, these four actions also point to the symbolic purpose of Jesus in his baptism. So just think with me. At what other time in Scripture, what other passage do you have both a the heavens opening, a voice being heard from heaven, God speaking, Water and a dove. The flood. Noah's Ark, the story of Noah's Ark. When mankind was saved from the wrath of God by taking shelter in Noah's Ark. What this is showing is that Jesus is the new ark. Jesus is the one who will save mankind from the wrath of God that is coming upon the the earth. And notice the the phrase, the heavens were opening. And multiple times in Scripture, this this phrase, heaven opening, uh, depicts rain, heavy rain that's going to be falling upon the earth. But more than that, this phrase also is described, um, it points, it describes the coming of the Messiah in Isaiah 64.1. Note this, uh, flip in your Bibles to Isaiah 64.1. Where Isaiah writes, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. This is this is a a plea for the Messiah to come. And it's also noteworthy that the word that Mark uses, he only uses one other time. In his gospel, the word. uh, Opening, it's actually the word. To, to, to split apart. That's what it means. Schizo. And the only time this word is used in the Gospel of Mark is right after the centurion who kills Christ declares that surely this must be the Son of God. And right after that it says the veil was ripped apart from top to bottom. It's the same word. The heavens were torn open. So it seems to prefigure what, what Christ will do with his death. And in Genesis, when the heavens were opened, we see water being poured forth to destroy the earth. But instead of rain coming down as a, as a kind of wrath of God to destroy here, we have instead the Spirit coming down. The promised Spirit. And the spirit descends in the form of a dove. And of course, this dove identifies Jesus as 
the new ark. So Jesus' baptism really points to his work as our Savior. But Jesus wasn't baptized for his sins. In fact, when he came to get baptized, we know in the, in the Gospel of Mark, John the Baptist, uh, it says, would have prevented him. And he says, it's not, it's not you that needs to be baptized. I need to be baptized by you. I mean, even John the Baptist recognized who Jesus was and he knew he was without sin. And yet Jesus was baptized. Why? Well, he wasn't baptized for his sins. He was baptized for our sins. His baptism, like ours, is symbolic of his death on our behalf. Just like our baptism looks back to the work that Christ does on the cross in his death and then rising again, likewise, his death, or sorry, his baptism points forward to that work of dying and rising again. And this is also why Peter associates Jesus' baptism with Noah's Ark. Notice in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20. Peter makes the same connection. And it's, it's worth noting, too, that many people believe that Mark got most of his content about Christ from the Apostle Peter. 1 Peter 3, verse 20, who writes regarding spirits in prison who were once disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's saying your baptism is a point is a pointer back towards the work that Christ did on your behalf. Just as he died and rose again, likewise, in your faith in him, you too have died and are now alive in Christ. So Jesus' baptism points to the fact that he is our ark. He is the only means whereby we can be saved from the wrath of God. And another way he's identified as the Messiah is seen in the words of the Father that are spoken here. The Father says, You are my beloved Son. In you I am well pleased. How does that point to the Messiah? It's a good question. The Father is quoting Isaiah 42.1, which announces the coming of the servant of the Lord. We read it just a few minutes ago. That this suffering, the servant who through suffering would save Israel from their sins. So this is no mere parental affirmation of love and affection. This is affirmation that Jesus is the Messiah. Look again at Isaiah 42, what he says. Isaiah 42, verse 1. Coastlands, listen to me in silence and let the peoples gain new strength. Oh, that's chapter 41. Sorry, chapter 42. Let's try it again. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Now, the similar wording is more obvious if you actually get to read the Greek translation, the Septuagint which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew. And 
for our benefit, this is actually translated for us in the New Testament, actually in Matthew 12, verse 18. Flip over to Matthew 12, verse 18. And read how similar the wording is to what the Father says. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved, in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. So the Father is saying, you're him. You're the Messiah. So he's not merely saying, I'm proud of you, son. Which, of course, he is. He's saying, you're the Christ. Now it's time to do the work that you have come to accomplish. Now it's time to fulfill your role as the Christ, as the suffering servant that's prophesied in Isaiah 42 and Isaiah 49 and Isaiah 53. And that's why in the very next sentence we have the Spirit driving Jesus out into the wilderness. It says immediately the Spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beasts and the angels were ministering to him. So we're told immediately after he receives the Holy Spirit. He is driven by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days to be tested. Now this is an allusion back to uh, Israel's 40 year stint in the wilderness while they were being tested, while they were being tried. But unlike Israel, Jesus endures these temptations from Satan. That, that word drove in the, in the, it's drove in the ESV, it's impelled in the New American Standard. It, it means, it's a very strong word. It means to cast out literally. Ekbalo. Um, it's used later in Mark to describe what Jesus does when he casts out demons from people. It also carries this idea of compulsion, being driven. Interestingly, Stephen, in the book of Acts, as he recounts to his audience, his Jewish audience, of all the work of God in Israel, and he speaks of Moses delivering Israel from Pharaoh, he uses this word, Acts 7.40. Just as Moses led Israel into the wilderness to escape Pharaoh, the king of Egypt then, the Spirit is leading Jesus into the wilderness to face Satan, the prince of this world. So Jesus, instead of being praised and lauded and honored, after he has the Spirit descend upon him, is driven into the most lonely, cold, harshest place he could go. And remember, this is the Spirit leading him here. To face Satan. The word Satan actually means adversary. His opponent. And in the Gospel of Mark, Satan as well as the demons play a very prominent role. You'll notice that Jesus' first miracle at the end of this chapter is to cast out a demon. The Pharisees even accused Jesus of doing this 
in the power of Satan. Satan is even referenced in the parable of the four soils that when people hear the word, Satan comes in and snatches it away. He's the opponent, the adversary. In fact, when, when Jesus tells his disciples that he has come not to conquer the earth, but to die on behalf of people on the cross, what happens? His disciples turn to him and say, no, no, you can't do that. In fact, Peter does, the leader of the disciples. And what does Jesus say to him? Get behind me, Satan. The same thing that Peter was trying to get Jesus to do after that announcement is the same thing Satan's trying to get Jesus to do in his temptation here. You'll notice that in in the other gospel accounts, Satan basically says, I will give you whatever you want. He just, he, he just wants say, Jesus not to fulfill his role as the suffering servant. But Jesus wards off all of those temptations. And the point here is if we study Mark's gospel, you will notice that this is not just a story that's being told. It is an epic conflict. This is a war story. What's going on? The, the conflict of Jesus as he casts out demons and as they face him and as he's tempted to give up the calling that Jesus has called him on. Sorry, that, that the Lord, that the Father has called him to perform. It, it is not just a hallmark story. It is not just the story we like to hear at Christmas of, of you know, being lauded by wise men. It's not just the story of people being healed and their lives being improved. The real point of this story is that the Savior, the Christ, must conquer Satan. And to do so, there is only one objective ultimately that he has. And that is to go to the cross and die on behalf of a rebellious people. And this reminds us that Satan and his demons are no myth. There's a lot of horror stories. There's a lot of, we just got through Halloween. A lot of mockery of Satan and his demons. And and people think, yeah, because they've seen so many Hollywood horror movies, they know all about demons. Even at people who practice witchcraft or are part of the occult, and they think, oh yeah, I know all about demons. Of course, they believe in them. But they don't know them as well as Jesus knew them. We don't know the adversary as well as we think we might. He is as real as you or I are. And in fact, demons are the greatest adversaries we face in this life. You might think it's your spouse. You might think it's your parents, your boss, your neighbors. But, it, but, but in reality, it's, it's Satan. And how does, how does Satan and his demons seek to do their work? Well, temptation. Temptation. And they, they tempt you because they hate you. They want to see you destroyed. They want to see you throw your life away. They want to see you make a mockery of Christ. 
And they want to see you humiliated. They want to see you broken. They want to see you weeping. They take joy in that. And that's why Paul says in Ephesians 6 that our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness. So he calls us to take up the full armor of God that we would be able to resist in the evil day. And having done everything to stand firm. I mean, just consider the temptations that you face on a daily basis. Idolatry. Covetousness. Pride. Lust. Gluttony. Greed. Laziness. Deceit. Anger. And just think, how have you been tempted just this week? Or just today? How are you being tempted right now? Well, where do you think those temptations are coming from? Like with Jesus, Satan's primary aim is to tempt us so that we might be destroyed. And ultimately to reject God's call on our life to live for His glory. And although we fail time and time again, what we see in Mark's Gospel is He didn't. Jesus withstood every temptation. And it foreshadows the fact that He's going to win. He's going to go to the cross. He's going to pay for our sins. And He will rise again so that we too might have new life. That we too might receive what John promised in, in verse 9. We, might, we too might receive the Holy Spirit. Just as Jesus did. Now it's interesting that Mark doesn't describe this showdown with Satan. And it's because he wants to make a different point. Mark wants to highlight just that Jesus, just as Jesus was the new ark, he's also the new Israel. He's standing in place of Israel. And maybe you picked up on this in Isaiah 42 as it describes the servant of the Lord. At times it seems like he's speaking to Israel and times he's speaking to his servant who's going to rescue Israel. And it's, it's not obvious. Well, the way you reconcile that is Jesus, he's speaking ultimately to Jesus because Jesus stands in place of Israel. Jesus becomes what Israel was always supposed to be. The reason Israel can receive all of the promises that were given to Abraham is not because they were ever faithful to the covenant. They weren't. It's because Jesus was. So Jesus is the new Israel just as Jesus is the new ark. And where Israel failed, he was victorious. He is the promised Christ. And also, interestingly, what Mark does describe is what he says in verse 13. He says that he was with the wild beasts and the angels were ministering to him. And there's one, only one other place in Scripture where you have angels and wild beasts placed right alongside one another. In Psalm 91. Go ahead and flip to Psalm 91, verse 11, and notice this. 
Very purposefully, this also is recognized as a messianic psalm. Mark's showing that he's fulfilling those promises as well. Psalm 91, verse 11. For he will give his angels charge concerning you. So you have angels. To guard you in all their ways. They will bear you up with their hands that you do not strike your foot against a stone. You might be thinking, oh, that's right. In Matthew and in Luke, these, Satan quotes these verses. He does. And Satan's like, you're, what he's saying is, like, I know you're the Messiah. And if you're the Messiah, he's going to protect you. And interestingly enough, he doesn't quote verse 13, though. Satan doesn't like verse 13 because it says, you will tread upon the lion and the cobra. The young lion and the serpent you will trample down. Jesus was with the angels and he was with these wild beasts to show that he would be victorious. And Mark notes both the angels and the wild beasts because he wants us to see both the sim- in symbolism and through prophecy that Jesus is the promised Messiah. Jesus is the one that John said was coming. Jesus was the one that they need to look to in order to be saved. So he uses these two accounts in order to to shine a bright spotlight on Jesus Christ. That they might recognize that this is the Messiah. This is the King of Israel. This is God's Son. He doesn't want us to miss this truth. Why not? Why is why does Mark want us to see so clearly that this is the Christ? In 1994, I remember being startled in my sleep because the house that I was sleeping in began to shake violently, and there was this loud rumble, and it would it went on for like 30 seconds. It was the earthquake in 29 Palms. And that earthquake was followed hours later while I was in church, actually serving as an altar boy in our Catholic church with this giant stained glass window behind me. We were sit, the seats we had were these tiny things. And so the church starts to shake and everybody head jives under the pews. And me and the other altar boy are like, we're toast if this comes crashing down. And right after that hit, the first earthquake, we all went hid under the, in these safe places. And then after the earthquake was over, we turned on our television set. We turned on the radio because we wanted to know what happened. I remember my dad said, if, if, this, is, if this was really close, it may not be too bad of an earthquake. But if this was 100 miles away, this could be, this could be devastating. And we wanted to find out what other danger might be imminent. Well, imagine being in a natural disaster that did require this massive evacuation from where you were. And so what you do is you immediately tune into the radio to, to, to find out what's going on. And you discover that the danger is not over. And in fact, your life is still in imminent danger as well as your family's lives. And the announcer solemnly says to you, Listen carefully. 
The danger is so bad. Sorry, the damage is so bad that now there's only one means of escape. In order to be rescued, you need to pay attention carefully to the following instructions. And then he goes on to tell you exactly what you must do in order to be saved. Take only these items. Go to this place. Be there at such and such a time. And then he says, don't be late. If you recognized immense danger on the horizon, there's only one way you would respond. You would listen. Well, have you given into temptation even once? The Bible says that the soul that sins must die. And we've all sinned. And therefore, each one of us in this room deserves to face for eternity the wrath of God. There is no greater danger. There's never been a greater danger throughout history than that very real danger. And if you recognize that danger that you are in, you would listen. The Bible also says that there's only one way that we can be saved from that danger, through the Messiah. And once you've identified who that Messiah is, wouldn't you listen to him? So let's listen to what he says. Verse 14. Now, after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Mark says that Jesus came preaching the gospel of God. That's what the Messiah does. He leaves the wilderness. He goes into Judea. And what does he do? He preaches. He proclaims like that announcer in that warning about imminent danger. He, he announces the kingdom of God is at hand. He proclaims. There's a chance to be rescued. Proclaims the gospel, it says. The gospel of God. The word gospel, we need to understand. It's a very simple word. It just means good news. It's very generic. Good news. There's good news. And if you're in danger, that's what you want to hear, right? What's the good news? Tell me the good news. Now, when we Christians typically speak of the gospel, we refer to a summary of the good news, usually. The critical things that a person must believe so that they might be saved. And so we we summarize it. Usually it's summarized in four points. That God is the creator. And therefore, he has all authority in heaven and earth. He, we belong to him. It's not he belonging to us. Secondly, that man has sinned against him and therefore deserves to be punished. Thirdly, that Christ died to save us from our sin. And fourthly, we can be saved if we repent and believe the gospel. 
And so usually when we speak of the gospel or believe in the gospel, we're referring to the summary of the good news. But what is the good news that Jesus preaches here, though? And clearly he's not walking people through the Romans road. Romans hasn't been written yet. What is the good news that he's preaching? Well, he tells us, verse 15, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. First phrase, the time is fulfilled. This refers to that the the, the time has now come. The long awaited Messiah is here. That period of waiting and longing that Israel had after they had been thrown into exile. And no longer did any prophecy come. Years of silence as they waited for the Messiah to come. Jesus says, it's now here. The time is now. For the establishing of the kingdom of God. This was the time the prophet Daniel spoke of in Daniel chapter 2 verse 44. Listen to these words. Daniel 2 44. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. Nor shall the kingdom be left over to another people. In fact, it shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end and it shall stand forever. Jesus is saying that kingdom that was prophesied in Daniel is now here. It's coming. That kingdom that will never be destroyed, that will conquer all other nations. That's why Jesus says the kingdom of God is at hand. And so in making this declaration, Jesus is saying, I'm the king. I'm the Christ. You should be asking yourselves, well, if if that's the kingdom Jesus was bringing Why don't we see it? Why didn't Jesus in his coming destroy all other nations? Well, this is a tension that the Bible does not try to hide. It doesn't sneak away from. In fact, it it, it highlights it. In fact, this was the same question the disciples wrestled with. If Jesus is the Christ, why did Why did he not fulfill all those other prophecies regarding conquering the Gentiles? Well, the answer is seen in the fact that the Christ had to die first. If Jesus would have brought in the kingdom before he died, sure, Israel would have been saved from the Gentiles, but they wouldn't have been saved from the wrath of God. That was their greater need. Christ cared about Healing them from their greatest need. Their slavery to sin. Their slavery to their damnation. And he knew in order for that to happen, he must die. Before he could establish his kingdom, he needed to rescue people from their sin. Then why didn't Jesus establish his kingdom after he rose from the dead? I mean, he rose from the dead and he was with the disciples for 40 days. Why didn't he establish the kingdom then? That's actually the very same question the disciples asked. Turn to Acts chapter 1. The disciples wondered the very same thing. Jesus, if you're the Messiah, 
and now you've died and risen again, is it now the time that you will establish your kingdom that was prophesied in Daniel? Acts chapter 1, verse 4. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said you had heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So that promised Holy Spirit that John the Baptist prophesied and proclaimed in Mark 1, 9, 1, 8, will now finally be received. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? Now notice that Jesus doesn't answer their question. He said, it's not for you to know the times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power and the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria into the end of the earth. So Jesus' answer to their question, very interestingly, is you don't need to know that answer. Listen to what I'm going to tell you to do. Go and preach the gospel. Preach. Do what I did after I received the Spirit. Preach the gospel. And the reason Jesus has not yet established his kingdom upon the earth is because of his great compassion. Because until every people has a chance to hear this good news, he's going to hold back. He's extending a ministry of mercy before he conquers which he will, it's prophesied in Revelation 19. Before he conquers, he has sent forth his ambassadors into every corner of the earth and he has called us to proclaim amnesty to any people, any person who would trust in him, who would repent and believe in him and he will forgive them of all their transgressions. Our message to the world is essentially the same message that he preaches in Mark 1, 15. Repent and believe the gospel. The word repent actually means to have a change of thinking. What it refers to is to, to think of sin differently now that you see it for what it is, now that the Word of God has revealed its true nature to you. So it's not just acknowledging that a sinful action is wrong. It's seeing that it's wrong. And therefore changing our behavior in light of that understanding. So to illustrate this, another disaster illustration. I'm not trying to be hokey, just work with me. Imagine going to Cannon Beach with three friends. And while you're there, a lifeguard announces to you that they've just had a, a tsunami warning. And you need to evacuate. So you look to, to one of your friends and they look back at you and they, they say, I don't believe that guy. And he doesn't even look that serious when he, make, when he, tell, when he told us this. It must be a drill. Besides, I'm having a good time. I don't want to leave. And even if there is a tsunami, this might be the greatest wave that we've ever experienced. 
And you turn to your other friend who nods their head and is also skeptical. But having grown up in a large family and recognizing the importance of listening to authorities and obeying authorities, he reluctantly decides to leave to the evacuation site. But although he walks away secretly in his heart, he still wishes he was there on the beach with his friend. Your third friend, however, having watched multiple National Geographic documentaries on tsunamis and the destruction they cause, when she hears this news, she screams and she hightails it off the beach. She jumps in her car and drives to Portland as fast as she can and vows never to go back to Cannon Beach ever again. Now I ask you, which one of those three friends repented? Which one of those friends understood the very real danger in response to the news that they heard? Obviously, it's the third friend. She believed the warning of the lifeguard. And she repented because she believed. And you'll notice that repentance and belief in the Bible always go hand in hand together. You don't have repentance if you don't have belief. You don't have belief unless you have repentance. You can't have one without the other. So the word believe, we look at it, it essentially means to trust. It means that you take Jesus at his word. When you read the Bible, you recognize this is not just the mumblings of some old men a hundred years, a few thousand years ago. You realize this is the word of God. God is speaking to me from this. And because you know it's the word of God, you trust it. You submit to it. Now, I realize the word submit is not a very popular word in our culture. It's especially not popular here in the Northwest. We don't like the word submit because there's very few people we can trust. I mean, it doesn't take long for you to live in this life to discover there's very few trustworthy people. I mean, even your parents let you down. Your friends let you down. I mean, very few people in this world that you can trust. And so when we hear submit and we don't trust people, that doesn't make any sense to us at all. I mean, why would you submit to somebody that you don't trust? Our unwillingness to submit is due to our inherent distrust in others, and it may be warranted. But recognize, if you don't submit to Christ and His Word, all of His Word, you don't really believe Him. Well, you might be asking, well, why should I trust what the Bible says? Who else are you going to trust? Yourself? Okay. Have you ever been wrong? Have you ever made a mistake? I know we don't like to talk about this very much, but if I think if we're all honest, all of us, myself included, the reason my life is such a mess is because of me, it's because of my foolishness, it's because of my choices. It's the same with you. The reason it's not a bigger mess is because you've actually listened to his word. 
We're not, we're not as wise as we like to think we are. And I know the, the rest of the world will say, well, just blame somebody else. Blame your parents. Blame your kids. Blame your boss. The reason your life is miserable is because of them. It's not you. Well, that's just stupid. Just be honest. Honestly. I mean, yes, they, they do cause problems. I'm not saying they're always right and you're always wrong. But we are the problem. It's our sin. It's our selfishness. You really want to trust yourself when it comes to deciding what is best for your eternity? That you in your heart of hearts always knows what's right? Or are you going to trust other people, your friends, to tell you what's best for you, for your eternity? How to be saved from the wrath of God? Or are you going to trust the experts, those people who you don't know, but they, 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 get, they have lots, multiple letters after their name and they work in universities and they write papers and stuff that you'll never read because it's above our heads. But they tell you that you can't trust the Bible. Well, just consider those celebrities, for instance, that tell you, yeah, you can't trust the Bible. Follow me. Look at the life I'm leaving. Well, look at their life. Are you really going to trust them to tell you what's best for your life? What's best for your eternity? Are you going to risk your eternity on that celebrity's suggestion? I mean, do they really have it figured out? Are they really such trustworthy paragons of truth that you're going to stake your eternity, eternal destiny on them? And if you just read your Bible, you will discover it is trustworthy. It is consistent. I mean, see for yourself. I know, there's, I know there's so many people out there saying you can't trust it. Just see for yourself. Read it. It's God's Word. Now, people make up all sorts of lies about the Bible. Why? Why are they so against the Bible? It goes back to what we were talking about earlier. They don't want to submit to it. It's not because the Bible's not trustworthy. They don't like what it says. If, if you listen to the Bible, that means you have to stop sinning. And they don't want you to stop sinning because misery loves company. You might make them feel guilty if you repent. Look at John chapter 9, what Jesus says in John chapter 9, verse 3. Sorry, not John chapter 9. John chapter 3, verse 9. Let's try that. That's probably good too, but not where I was going. Verse 19. John chapter 3, verse 19. This is the judgment. That the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light. For their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light. And does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. My question for you is, are you ready? Are you ready to come to the light? Are you ready to come to the light? D.L. Moody, a famous evangelist, was once preaching in Chicago. And he ran out of time, as preachers want to do. I want to do now. 
And he said, come back tomorrow and I'll tell you the rest of the story where he was going to lay out for them God's plan of salvation where they might be saved. And the very next day was the great Chicago fire. And hundreds of those people who were listening to him died. And I say that because we don't know how much time we have left. We don't know what takes place tomorrow. And remember what Jesus said in Mark chapter 1 about the kingdom of God. The time is fulfilled. Repent and believe the gospel. What he's saying? He's saying the time is now. The kingdom of God is at hand. Now, today is the day of salvation. I know how easy it is. Just I'll make that decision tomorrow. Let me think about it. Let me ponder it. But if you knew your life was in imminent danger and you heard this was the one way you might be saved, would you really just wait? Don't wait. Today, now is the day of salvation. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the only means of salvation. Will you listen to him? Will you trust him? Father, we do trust you. Christ, we do trust you. Spirit, we trust what you've revealed to us in your word. That it is your word. And I pray that you would continue to strengthen our trust in you. And for anybody here that may not know you, I pray that you would open their eyes to see Just as you opened the eyes of the blind to see physically, that you would open the eyes of their heart to see spiritually, that they would recognize that you and you alone can save them from their sins. That you would give them the gift of faith so that they might repent from all their sins and trust in you and follow you and submit to your word. That they might experience the joy of your salvation. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.